Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn once again to the book of Matthew and once again to chapter 16. And we begin our reading at verse 13 and turn to uh, verse, we'll read through verse 20. <clears throat> when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let me read through verse 23. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, it shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Thus far we read this account of Peter's confession and then Jesus' own declaration regarding his confession. And that's what we want to consider this evening in the preaching. After Peter has confessed this wonderful truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 18 Jesus says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Beloved, we have here in this narrative that there, there's this mixture, this wonderful mixture of light and of darkness. On the one hand, as Jesus comes into this northernmost region of <clears throat> Israel, Caesarea, Philippi, the northernmost point that he's ever ministered in. And there's heathen temples all about, and it's a place where Gentiles had frequented and still did. And there at this time also is this darkness, not only of the surroundings, but of the situation in which Jesus and the disciples are finding themselves. There's Everybody seemingly not wanting to follow Jesus, and except for a small band. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, are <coughs> plotting to kill him. And that's why at this time Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer and die and be 
uh, crucified in Jerusalem. So there's darkness all around, and yet there's this great light that Jesus said came from heaven, and that's Peter's confession. When Jesus asked who people say they are, and the disciples, uh, or who people say he is, and the disciples say, well, some Jeremiah, and so on. Peter hits the nail on the head, as it were, and says of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, He got it right. And our text at this time is further light. Peter has said something. Now Jesus will say something. And he uses the occasion of Peter's confession to declare that um, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Uh, An amazing confession, great light shining in the midst of the darkness and of the prospect of the demise, the death of the Savior. Well, there's been in the church's reflection upon this confession, and especially this declaration of Jesus, of Peter and the rock, and and building the church on it, and so on. There's, There's been no little controversy, and a lot of darkness even, in the conclusions that people have made with regard to this confession of Jesus with regard to Peter and the rock. And some have even said (coughs) that this text is the most controversial of all of the controversies that Jesus had and of all of the scriptures that are to be interpreted by the church. There's been all of this darkness and admixture of light and darkness with regard to the truth of this statement. Well, beloved, we have to deal with this we have to consider the controversy because it rages today. And if it's forgotten today, it ought not to be forgotten because uh, depending on where you land in this controversy, you land either in heaven or in hell. It's that important. And we are the church that is called to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints and nothing has changed Jesus Christ is the great controversialist. That's why there's this cross. And his church following him, which is hated for his name's sake and which stands for truth, must contend for the faith. And that means we must be uh, polemical, more or less, depending on the needs of the congregation, specific needs of the hour, but certainly with regard to this text. And now, in light of... Light of that truth, I I want at the same time, beloved, and as we rise up from the table of this morning, to be those whose lives, though necessarily must be controversial, we must take a stand for truth and against the lie. May it be that we are the people that truly lives according to the truth and not just to argue about it. This is the danger of every controversial text or doctrine. It may be the danger especially of the ones who have the reformed deposit of the, of the faith of our fathers living still. And the danger is that we let arguments and winning arguments be just about everything in our life. And there's no meat to it. There's no substance to our life. And we're good in the 
debating table and so on, and we can defeat all Arminians with a single argument and 29 texts. But we need to live the Christian life as well. And so, though we're not without controversy, and we may not be, controversy with Rome still exists. We must be those who are positively Christian. And Jesus alludes to this when later on, and we're going to consider this somewhat at length, he reminds people who confess that he's the Christ that you have to take up your cross and to follow him. And children, this is what Christianity is all about. You come to learn the truth in your catechism and then to live it and to live it out fully and freely and, and with great joy in the Lord and full of fruits of the Holy Ghost so that we're here to win glory to God and not to ourselves, the great debaters, but glory to God and sinners, not only to our position, but to Christ himself. So let's consider some thoughts of Peter and the rock and the Christ and want to have three um, many themes following this one theme of Peter and the rock and the Christ, rather general theme. And first, the rock of rocks. And secondly, the building of buildings. And finally, the victory of victories. It's all here. The rock of rocks, the building of buildings, and the victory of victories. May God bless us in truth and for righteousness' sake. Peter <clears throat> says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus calls him blessed. And the reason is that this isn't of Peter. Heaven has come to Peter through the teaching of Jesus, maybe at the flash of an inspired moment at this time, and has given him this confession it's not from flesh and blood that you have been able to say, Peter, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's from heaven. There's something of my Father in heaven that's worked in you and enlightened your mind, at least somewhat, though Peter didn't really get what he was talking about. But he said it. <clears throat> and so Peter praises, or Jesus praises God for this and his Statement, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, reflects this praise of God even more than the fact that it's a compliment, I suppose, to Peter himself. It's a statement of the fact that God has been at work in Peter and we're beholding this and hearing this right with our very ears, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then... Jesus goes on to say, this also, of course, is of God because Jesus is of God. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I want to consider that. The claim here is that the claim here of Rome, Roman Catholic Church, is that Peter himself is the rock. You are Peter, and on this rock, that's you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. That's the Roman Catholic claim. In fact, this is the <clears throat> where Rome started. It started in this text. It started from people thinking that Rome had the preeminence among other cities, and that the bishop of Rome therefore ought to have the 
preeminence. And it's continued with the theory that Peter himself was in Rome. And Peter himself is the first pope. Well, this Roman Catholic claim is false. Peter's not the rock on which Jesus builds his church. Jesus is the rock. And any other foundation will never stand and is humanism and will certainly be a cursed building if you build on a rock that's a man and not Jesus. Uh, to be sure, and we have to wrestle with this, we can't just let our dogma inform us of things and think that we have it all clear here what's going on. It's true, as Rome says, that Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And Peter's name means rock. And Jesus gave him that name. In the Aramaic, it was Cephas. And Jesus said, You're going to be Peter, John 1 42. And, and here, this is what was anticipated that Peter's statement would somehow be connected to his confession. Peter's name is rock name would be somehow uh, connected to his confession. So Peter is blessed here, and Peter is in fact, and was in fact so blessed to be a leader of the church. No one can deny that. Peter was a leader at Pentecost in Acts 2. He's the one who was led of the Holy Spirit to interpret the whole Bible and especially the prophecy of Joel being fulfilled and the Spirit being poured out, and to preach the first, the first New Testament sermon. Peter spoke to the Jews then of the things of Jesus and called them to repentance and was able to put it all together because of this wonderful um, blessing that he had as a leader of the church. And then in Acts 10, we know that Peter was given a vision of unclean animals and, and they, he was supposed to rise and eat them and then he was told to go to Cornelius, a Gentile, and he was, as it were, the opening of the door to the Gentiles. So Peter was a leader in the church of the Jew and the Gentile, to be sure. And it, there's a way in which singular, uh, Peter is singularly blessed in this. He's blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah. There's a, that heaven has so blessed you. And as Peter speaks to Peter, you are Peter. Jesus, or as Jesus speaks to him, he's certainly alluding to the, the fact that his name is Petros or rock. And so Jesus is giving him a kind of distinction among the disciples. Even as God gave to Mary and said to Mary, blessed are you among women. And she was blessed of all women with the fact that she was going to be the mother of the Savior. So Peter here is blessed of all men, even of the apostles, with a kind of leadership position, being the first one here to make this this clear confession and this bold confession of the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. 
So this ought to be acknowledged. There's a sort of praise here to God who works and gives from heaven something to a mere man like Peter. And certainly this is how God works in all of us. But now in Peter, he's working in a certain way. At the same time, we can't go and dare not go near so far as Rome goes in saying that Peter himself is the rock on which the church will be built. And this as follows. Peter's name, in fact, is Petros. But when Jesus goes on to say, after he says, you are Peter, you're Petros, he goes on to say after that, on this rock I will build my church. And what he's saying there is to make a subtle distinction, or not so subtle, between Peter the Petros and something else, this rock that Jesus has in mind. And this rock, according to the Greek original language, is not Petros, It's a slightly different word, and it makes all the difference. It's Petra. So Peter is Petros, and the rock, this rock on which Jesus will build his church is called Petra. Now, what that means is that there is some distinction that Jesus is making here. And in fact, the word Petros refers to a certain kind of a rock, maybe a little rock, or a piece of a rock that's a fragment of another rock outcropping. And Petra is a larger rock, maybe something that is um, very, very big. It's distinguished from Petros, the little rock, which is Peter. So Jesus is making a distinction here. And <clears throat> Reminding us all that Jesus himself wants us to have heaven on our mind. The confession of Peter has been revealed to him from his father in heaven. And now the fact that there's this rock that's being referred to is something that Jesus would have in mind as he leads us from Peter to this rock of which he's speaking. Now, the Protestants would say that this word Petra, with a different gender, it's feminine, it's not masculine as Petros, refers to what Peter said, and they're not far from this, to be sure. What Jesus is saying here, in distinction from Peter himself and his little confession and his little faith, really, which he had, is that there is something he said from heaven that's to be remembered. And it's not the Peter, but it's this rock, Jesus says, that's to be remembered. And Protestants have said rightly, it certainly then includes just what Peter said. It's not about his person. It's about what he said, his confession, the Greek language matching Petra, Hamalagia, a confession that he makes, that the church makes, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So on the confession, Jesus is saying, not on Peter himself, the church will be built. And this is truly true. On truth, the church is built 
not on what men say or men themselves, but on the truth. Besides that, Peter is hardly one that anyone should want to be building a church on, anything that's going to be reliable and steadfast, as rock indicates. It never changes. Because we're told, even in the very context of this conversation here, that Peter had a completely wrong understanding of just what he was talking about. When he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he couldn't imagine that it would be the case, as Jesus would very soon say, he had to suffer and die and be delivered up to be crucified even. In fact, he says, be it far from you, Lord. That's not becoming you. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And my statement surely indicates that you're going to be a king like David, and you're going to win your battles. You're not going to lose. You're not going to lose against those cursed scribes and Pharisees and against those Romans. And so Peter shows he's not very much a rock, is he? One minute he's in the heights of heaven, and and then there he is, even being satanic. Jesus says of Peter trying to interfere with his going to the cross, get behind me, Satan. Wow. Talk about going from riches to rags from righteousness to unrighteousness in about five minutes or however long it took for Peter to try to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Peter, later on in Galatians 2 and verse 11, I think had to be withstood, confronted by the Apostle Paul because he ended up favoring the Jews and principally denying the gospel of grace. And this forever shows that Peter is not the infallible pope that the pope makes him out to be. Later, of course, we know that Peter would deny the Savior. No one else of the disciples denied the Savior. Well, besides that, beloved, the Bible speaks of not only Peter having a certain eminence about him, but all of the apostles as being blessed. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, all of the apostles are said to be the foundation of the stone and Jesus Christ is the head of the corner. So there's not this preeminency that the papacy wants to make of Peter or of themselves because the Pope, of course, has to invent another line that not only Peter is the first Pope, but he's the first in a line of popes who will come after him in an unbroken line so that today you have Peter uh, in the Vatican ruling the Roman church, the the kingdom of heaven on earth, vicar of Christ. And, of course, all the claims that the papacy has made show that Peter's not the rock. The pope is certainly not the rock. Something different. The confession, to be sure, but even something more than that. We love it. Let's come right down to it. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the rock. Nobody else can be the foundation of the church because that's what rock means. Jesus is going to be also the one who builds on the rock. 
You have this truth in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There, one scripture interprets the other, and you have the divine and inspired explanation there of what Peter or Jesus is alluding to when he speaks of the rock. Yes, the rock of his confession, but the object of the confession, and that is the Savior himself. This, of course, goes back to the Old Testament, and there's the wonderful truth in the Old Testament of God being the rock, the only one who's ever could ever be a rock. Psalm 18, 31, who is God except the Lord and who is a rock except our God? Psalm 62 and verse 2, 6 and 7, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense and I shall not be greatly moved. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Beloved, let us be clear here. In this whole context of the darkness of this time, the darkness of the area of Caesarea, and now this flash of light by Peter's confession and Jesus' own declaration, Jesus would show that he is the light. The truth is in him. He is the rock. God, the rock right in front of their eyes. And that's why he can say uh, wonderful things that he will say about his building on the rock and also about the gates of hell not prevailing against his church. So you have the rock there. But, (coughs) excuse me, As we said, there's contenders for the place of the rock. And we have to do controversy here, beloved. We've had to expound once again the truth, the conviction that Jesus only is the rock and his truth. Because there's this conviction of many that that's not true. Maybe Jesus is, but also and especially in the Pope in the one Roman Catholic Church, as people say. And so there's a competition, a kind of competition. As we saw this morning, God has spoken the word in these last days, but there's a competition. There's many words, many words all over the place. And we know that there's many rocks, too. Even religious rocks and Christian rocks that is, foundations that people would lay on other than Jesus, maybe a a papacy or maybe other false doctrines. But I want to expand upon this and get at what I was driving at in the introduction that we want to be more than controversial. And that is this, the, the setting of Jesus in this darkness of the land even, Caesarea Philippi, where 
There was hardly any vestige of Jewry, it seems, as the Gentiles were, were all over the place there. This reminds us that there's always been competition between Jesus and what he builds and his church in all other religions of human beings. And make no mistake about it, people are religious. They will be religious. They will worship some god. It's just not the true God unless they're given grace to bend the knee to Jesus. And so you have here, as I pointed out last time, just want to expound upon this and and apply this. You have this place called Caesarea Philippi that was a veritable religious fool's gold mine. There were temples and remnants of temples of the Syrian gods all over the place, of the Canaanite gods of Baal who worshipped this thing called Baal as the god of life, as the source of life. It was said that the mythological Pan, the god of nature, also had a birthplace here. And there were as well the headwaters. It was surmised of the Jordan River right there so that there was this confluence of, of religions, pagan, and Canaanite, and and then Jewish even, because the Jordan River was the symbol of the peace and the prosperity of, of Israel itself. But then you had the white marble altar that was dedicated to Caesar at Caesarea Philippi that promoted the cult of the divine Roman Empire emperors. And so there was this altar to Caesar. Caesar was worshipped. And what I want to do by reminding us of this setting here is to remind us that at this point in the ministry of Jesus Christ, not only did Jesus have to know, but the church had to know what word they were going to listen to, what rock they were going to be built upon. They had to know, and we have to know, just who is this Jesus? And before we go any further, before we go out the door, we have to know there has to be this personal dealing with the fact that Jesus is asking each of us personally, whom do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And all around us are many rocks on which people build their homes and many refuges um, in which people find a solace and many things of the earth on which they're building their lives. And the religious people, even the religious cream of the crop, the the upper echelon of sophisticated religion, they're building on things they think will survive. And beloved, this is all about man. Man and things of the earth which have shown him gods of the earth and the devil himself, which has deluded man into worshiping the gods of the earth instead of the God over the earth. It's either toward paganism that we go right out the door tonight or toward piety. It's either toward the rock that is Jesus the foundation of all true religion, or we build 
on rocks which are nothing else than sinking sand, which will never survive the storms of this life and the storm of the wrath of God. So it won't do for us simply to be arguing for a certain view. We need to do that. Don't think that being peacemakers is all about simply laying down the sword of the word and not contending for truth. Don't do that. But we have to understand the heart of Jesus who wants our heart, our head, our hand, our all. Your hearts, children, my heart, your parents' hearts, young people's hearts, your all, your life, your loves, your hopes and your fears. He, he wants you. He wants you. And so, later he'll speak of following him. The personal confession that each of us must answer, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am, must be a personal discipleship. And the church is built on the rock soul by soul, disciple by disciple, and those who are trusting in Jesus, and those who are trusting in Jesus. So this is a matter of our life and of the glory of God. You see, Jesus reminds the disciples it's about heaven. Heaven reveals heavenly things. It's about the God of heaven, the God of light, the God who's spoken into this world in these latter days, the word Jesus, the word I love you, And heaven come down so that, yes, a Peter confesses, weak need Peter. And weak need you. And weak need me. We're we're all in this together. Heaven visiting us and our earth. That's what Christianity is all about. And yes, making of us something different his people, but still so earthly, still so fickle, and still needing always to rely on the rock. Rock. You doing that now? Really, every area of your life. The world doesn't have any trouble. Not really. Oh, yeah, you look at them, they're in deep trouble. And it's not just the economy, stupid. It's the soul. The soul of man. The soul of this Babylonian culture. What a terrible last days we live in. Beloved, for the grace of God, there you go. There I go. Out the door and down the hall and to the bar and Surfing here and surfing there and drinking your sorrows away. Jesus is our rock, the rock, and 
our rock. And the rock of rocks, don't ever forget that. You're listening on the internet, don't forget that. And also that Jesus builds on the rock, on himself, on his truth. Says you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. It's kind of like Jesus <clears throat> talking to Peter, you are Peter, personally. And then he doesn't say on you I'll build this church, but he says on this rock, like Remember when Jesus was talking about the temple and they were asking how long this temple would be destroyed and something like that? And Jesus then says, they're looking at the temple, he says, destroy this temple, this temple, this rock. Me, destroy my body and in three days I will raise it up again. He's subtly switching the focus from earth to heaven, from man to Messiah. How wise, how wise. And then, very humbly, he says, on this rock I will build my church. And very clearly, that's what he does. On this rock, this truth, on himself, I will build my church. <coughs> Jesus is speaking here of the ecclesia, the called out people. Here, and twice in Matthew 18, is the only place that Jesus speaks of the church. That's striking. There's lots of mentions of the Church of Christ in the epistles of the New Testament, but only three by Jesus himself in the Gospels. Striking. Not to say that church wasn't important to Jesus. In fact, the church here mentioned on which, which he will build on the rock is not just a new thing, it is a new thing in the sense that it will be the church of the crucified and risen Savior, the church of the New Testament and New Covenant. But the church had always been, and Jesus had always been building the church by promise and by picture in the Old Testament. Now, this is where a dispensationalist would disagree with us and say, no, Jesus is speaking of a future thing, of a future thing that just begins with him and the New Testament and Pentecost is the birthday, absolutely, of the church. But they're wrong. In fact, the Old Testament, uh, the, the Greek writers who translated the Hebrew Old Testament alluded to the fact that there was a continuity of the church of the Old and New Testament. When they translated the Hebrew word for assembly, the Jewish assemblies, kahal, by ekklesia. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 16, for example, we read that according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, and so on, there's a reference there to the assembly, the kahal in the Hebrew, which in the Greek language is translated ekklesia, the called out holy group of people. Also, you have that in another place in Deuteronomy and other places besides those two. 
There's always been this understanding, you see, that God history long has been gathering his church, as our Heidelberg Catechism reminds us in Lord's Day 21, that there's been this church, and it was in the bud in, in Israel, had Jewish noses and people from a certain bloodline, of course, which nevertheless was church, and which was Jesus building his church as he gathered the sons of God from Abraham's loins. And so it was this church in the bud, this church with a Jewish character, an old covenant church. Jesus now speaks of his building this church on his blood and looking forward to being this one who is of the church, who will rise again and who will bless with all spiritual blessings a New Testament people. The church of the gathered ones. Now, what I'm saying here is that Jesus is speaking of the spiritual body of Christ. He will build his church on the rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the spiritual body of Christ. He's not referring, first of all, to local congregations. I have to be clear here. There are references in the Bible to local congregations. The church of the invisible elect of God ought to gather in local congregations. You can't just say, I'm a Christian, I'm a member of the church invisible, and therefore I can just let go and let God and sing kumbaya around a fire and I don't need a local congregation. No, the Bible knows of the elect who see the need to be gathered as a local congregation here, there, in Comstock Park, in Corinth, or as the church at Jerusalem, as it's called in the book of Acts. So Jesus, however, is speaking of this spiritual body, which will be built up a spiritual house. And strikingly, on the rock, Jesus will be building on himself, on his truth. And as he builds, he gathers and defends and makes out of people like you and like me living stones. Peter says that as Jesus forms us to be his church and builds us on the rock, we are joined together and cobbled together, as it were, to be living stones, a part of the building. And this is a great blessing we have. And he uses this through means of builders, through officers, through the preaching of the gospel. And... He does this especially because, well, this is his church. Know what he says. On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is already possessive of the church before he's dead. He's saying here, there's a church and it's going to be mine. It is mine. And it's going to be mine not only by right, but by blood. Jesus Christ will purchase a people. You and me, he will purchase. He will buy. He will pay the wages of sin and death and bear the wrath of God for you. He will spend his precious blood and not gold or silver, but his blood, the blood of the everlasting Son of God to make you his own. He moves heaven and earth 
and the rock himself will all but crumble under the pressuring and the weight of God's wrath, and we might be built on him and live out of him. That's what he does. And while the world is building on its rocks and its philosophies and the religious world too, Jesus Christ is building his church. While the church is being built, this is what Jesus says, I'm going to be building this church. This is what I'm going to be doing. The implication is he's going to be doing this as he lays down his life, excuse me, for the church and rises again and as he rules from heaven. While he's doing that, there's going to be all of those around and in the graveyard of humanity's religions who are building their Babylons and their citadels to man and they're making their kingdoms. That's how you view history, you know. It's the history of God building his church over against man building his Babels, his kingdoms of man. So, beloved, this is what's going on here. And God is the God who will not be denied. Note that I will build my church. He's the rock and he's the builder. He's the architect. He's the rock. He's the builder. He's the one who blesses. He's the chief cornerstone. Even though we're called to be very busy in the things of the kingdom and to receive the truth and to grow in the truth and to be fruitful, not dead wood or dead stones and just cement. Wouldn't it be terrible if we were just a church that had to do with drywall and paint and carpet? And that's all you could tell. There's no difference between us and the drywall and the paint and the carpet. Because we're just dead. We're just sitting there. And maybe a couple of us will leave the congregation here. Just imagine this. I speak as a fool, I suppose. If the spiritual heart could be revealed and so that the deadness of the people would be revealed and after we... And this would be reflected in our earthly activity. So just as dead men can't move, it would be the case that God to reveal to us here, maybe the ones who are dead. And so afterwards we get up and we walk out, but there's 90% of us or 10% of us or even one, God forbid, who was just sitting there because they didn't hear. And they were just as much not a part of the true church of Jesus Christ as the drywall, and as the paint and the carpet and the wood. You see, there's a moment here, and it was 2,000 years ago, and it was in Caesarea Philippi, but the moment is now. God comes to us and he says here in our little neck of the woods, what do you say of me? Do you like the fact that you're being part of that church, build it on the rock? And you don't have the freedom just to go anywhere. And you ministers, you don't have the freedom to build on another foundation. 
Wouldn't that be terrible? Minister comes along here in this church, and I won't be here forever, beloved. The minister comes along, oh yeah, what Reverend Dick preached is, is true enough. It's just not relevant enough, though. That's why you're small. Just had a little foundation. Just Jesus. Let's be more expansive. I just read a book. I just took a course at seminary, How to Build a Church. Imagine if then some of the people started going for that, maybe the elders. The church would simply be destroyed. God would destroy it. The devil would destroy it. Don't be so hard. They're building bigger buildings down the road, bigger churches, bigger foundations than just Jesus and grace. What do you want, beloved? Building of buildings? Or buildings just like all the rest? You got to want the building of buildings. If it took my dead body to get you to want the building of buildings and the rock of rocks, I'd die for you right now. But thanks be to God, it took Jesus' dead body. And that makes all the difference. For the victory of victories, too. I will build my church. Here's the result. The gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there's some surmising about what the gates of hell are, what Hades is. And I think we can simply be clear on this, that it's the place of the dead, where the dead go, the bodies go. But that as seen as the place of Satan. Satan, before Jesus died, had the power of death, Hebrews 2, 14, I think. Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. Satan is this demon of death, deceiver of death. That's what's behind every lewd advertisement, young people. It's behind every success story of, of humans without God the demon of death. There's death in it. That's why it's so important to be very careful in this world, even using the culture. There's death in the pot. Death in the pictures. Death in the music. The places of entertainment and all of these things. There's death all around. 
and the wages of sin for those who die in the devil's arms, in the devil's bars, in the devil's hopes, which are hopelessness. But Jesus says this, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, against the church, against mine elect, against the people of truth. The gates of hell will not win. Death will not win. Basically, what Jesus is alluding to here, beloved, is, is this. He will rise from the dead. And after he dies... And after he rises from the dead, that's just the beginning of a harvest. That's just the beginning of a church that will follow, the church of the firstborn, the church of him who is at the right hand of God, who lives forevermore, who never dies. Eternal life is promised here. That's the victory of the people of God. Given faith, whereby now we overcome the world and death so that we can shout in the face of death and we can lay our loved ones in the covenant of grace into the grave with hope because death has no sting. Jesus took it out. A bee, a deadly hornet, without a sting. Hell will not prevail against the true church of Jesus Christ, the true people of God. Now, to be sure, hell does prevail over a lot that goes by the name of church. There's no guarantee here that a local congregation will survive the Antichrist, survive the onslaught of compromise, the temptation to compromise. Don't ever think that for a minute. There's no promise here either that families in the bloodlines of the covenant will themselves survive the Holocaust of Antichrist. Because compromise, parents do, and in the way of compromise, the generations are affected. The elect of God will last. Be clear on that. But often in the generation, God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. I know of families like this. And you do too, perhaps. Some who remain steadfast, some who say, ah, this is a funner church and this is better things to do on the Lord's day than just to go to the house of God and so on. And you see it in the children. (coughs) Excuse me. You see it in the grandchildren. You see it in the next generation of church. Oh, they know how to do church but they don't know how to do Christ. And it's all about humans and human advertising and the milk of human kindness and so on. Tragedies. But Jesus is emphatic here. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We will be defended against the gates of hell That could be a reference, the gates of hell, to the strength of hell, because the cities of those days, out of the cities would go the armies, 
and they would go forth conquering to conquer, and that would be a sign of the strength of the city. Could be that the gates of hell referred to the place where, as it did in Israel, the elders would meet and decide things. They'd make their policies, they'd engage in judicial things and decide legislative things and so on. So it could refer to the machinations, the plans, and the strengths of the devil, all of them together, no matter. Hell itself will not prevail against the church, against the people of God, against the church of Christ that builds on the rock. Children, remember that when you're building your house and making your plans. Make sure Jesus is building his house and fulfilling his plans in you then you can be assured that what you build will last and the works you do will be to the praise of God, will not prevail, will Satan against his people. But now I want to be more positive here too. And as we're in line with uh, wanting to be faithful to God and true disciples and not just controversialists, We rise up from the table with hearts of devotion. There's a defensive way of looking at the gates of hell will not prevail, the church circling the wagons, the church barring the windows and looking out, and the church having a couple of big guys packing just to make sure that nobody's going to hurt us. But there's an offensive interpretation as well. The church is so confident in Jesus that the church loves Jesus and the church listens to Jesus who says, now you go. You go to the ends of the earth. You go. You disciple the nations and you even knock on the gates of hell. And be confident as you bring the gospel, as you are on the offensive, that you will knock down the gates of hell. You will be used in the salvation of all of God's people. That's what the church is for. And so the church on the defensive will be protected. The church on the offensive will be used of God to gather in his church. Beautiful, positive picture of what Christianity is all about. And as you're working tomorrow, as you're schooling tomorrow, as you're doing whatever tomorrow, wherever you are tomorrow, remember that. That Satan is nothing to you. That is, yes, he's a nemesis. But he's a bee without a stinger, and his death is a, is a, is a bee without a stinger, and his words are nothing compared to the word of God, and his seeking to get you to build another, more modern building has lost all desire for you because you love the church and her hallowed walls and her lovely truth, her members, her people, her Savior. And you're going to be bold, and I'm going to be bold because Jesus is on our heart beloved. He's on yours, isn't he? He's you. He's your building. He's your all. He's your life. And in life and in death, that's your comfort. 
Be encouraged. Press on. Jesus says, on the rock of himself and his truth, he's going to build his church. He's building it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you believe that? Believe that. It's true. Amen. We thank you, Father, for speaking to us today and ministering to us. We need to be reminded constantly to live out our faith because the temptations are many to live out of our own creed and to bolster ourselves in whatever cause we would champion. Lord, you are God, and even now and tonight, you've been building your church and your kingdom has been coming, and we've heard him. And we hear him now as we rise up from the table and we live the table life, the having eaten Christ life, the believing life, the triumphant life. Hear our prayers, Lord. You would give us to triumph over every sin and to overcome by faith every Goliath, every problem. In the name of Jesus, the great builder of the church, the great victor, in his name we pray, amen.